Well, today I want to pick back up uh, with what we've been talking about in uh, in service throughout the year. At Affirmation Church, we've been doing a study on Christ in the Old Testament and thinking through together uh, how we ought to read the Old Testament in the light of Christ and how we ought to see Christ in light of the Old Testament. Jesus does not just pop out of nowhere. Jesus doesn't just sort of descend from heaven and take care of business and ascend. Jesus comes out of, if you will, a long story of Israel that is laying the groundwork and preparing the way for him to come so that if we don't read our Old Testaments, then we really have no idea what he's doing. And and oftentimes I think people look at uh, Christ and his ministry and yeah, have no idea what he's doing. Uh, you know, what are the miracles about? Why is he saying this? Why is he doing these actions? Even the people in Jesus' day oftentimes didn't have any idea what he's doing. So, if, And they knew their Old Testament. So if we don't know our Old Testament, then we're going to have a hard time. Jesus, his, the things he's, he does are just going to seem weird or they're just going to seem like Bible stories. Uh, and we're not going to see them as a fulfillment of the whole story that's been tracking throughout the Old Testament. At the same time, if we don't read the Old Testament in the light of Christ, we make a big mistake also, right? They just simply become these abstracted Bible stories, and most times, very badly so, they become they become like moral stories. Every story of the Old Testament becomes a you-should-be-like kind of story, you know? You should be like Moses. You should be like David. You should be like Abraham. And as we've said repeatedly, it's not that that's not true. You should be like David, when he does really good stuff, and you should not be like David with some of the other things he does. You should be like Abram when he's a man of faith and does what God calls him to do, even though he doesn't understand. But you certainly ought not to be like Abram when he's with Hagar uh, and not trusting the Lord. So the point of these stories is not primarily you should be like, but the point of these stories we find out ultimately is Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of these things. Jesus Christ is what all these stories are driving toward. So that if we read Abraham, the story of Abraham correctly, if we read the story of Moses correctly, then we will be reading them in the lens of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to those around him in uh, John chapter 5, to his critics, if you had believed Moses, because they were claiming that they were trusting in Moses, he says, if you would believe Moses, you would believe me. And then he makes this very powerful line, because Moses wrote about me. And for us in this little series, we've been, we've been using that sort of as our, our home base. Jesus says that Moses wrote about him. So when we read Exodus or when we read the stories of Genesis or really when we read anything in the Old Testament, in some sense, Moses or the writers of the Old Testament are writing about Jesus Christ. And so it's a challenge for us. When you read the Old Testament, <clears throat> do you see Christ? When you read the Old Testament, do you, do you have the lenses of Jesus Christ? Is it helping you understand better what Jesus has done or is doing? Or is it merely just a, you should be like David? You, you know, we all get all these moral stories that really do nothing but convict us because none of us are great heroes of the faith, right? So they're meant, these stories are meant to drive us to Christ and find their fulfillment in him. Well, today we'll take up the story of Passover, obviously the long text from uh, Exodus 14. But I want us to think about uh, this story today. And we've been looking in this season of Lent, though now we've had a, a Sunday off. As we've gone through Lent, we are taking up stories in the Old Testament that are focused on sacrifice. That are focused on the deliverance of the Lord that he has 
provided for his people. So last time we were together, we looked at the story of Abram going up to Mount Moriah and and being called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we tried to place our we tried to get out of the Bible story of that story and think what it must have been like for a father to have to sacrifice his only son. But then we, of course, spent time reflecting on the amazing gift of grace that God did by giving a ram as a substitute for Isaac and how that pointed forward to the work of our Heavenly Father who did not withhold his only son, but as a substitute not only for Isaac, but for Abraham and for us all, placed his own son on the altar and slayed his own son, who, as we just read, went willingly, Father, at the end of the day, I submit to your will, and who gave himself up as a sacrifice so that we might be forgiven. So we thought about that two weeks ago, or how many weeks it was. I've lost complete track of time with this whole quarantine thing. I have no idea what day it is. I have no idea what week it is. I don't know if you're suffering from the same thing, but I've completely lost all my bearing. Well, today, let's think about the story of Passover. And I want us to think about three things. I want us to think about the context of Passover. I want us to think about the deliverance of Passover. And I want us to think about the celebration of Passover. So first, let's just take a second and think about the context of Passover. You know, because these are very familiar stories. If we know any Bible stories, we know the stories of the Exodus, right? We know the context that Passover is coming in. Try to remember, where is Israel? Israel's in Egypt. And what are they doing there? Well, they're slaves. And they've been slaves now for some time. But what are they doing in Egypt anyway? Well, if we track that story all the way back, we'll remember that they are there because of the sin, really, of Joseph's brothers. That if we, if we go back to the beginning point, not that the Lord wasn't sovereignly directing all this, he, he certainly was, but they're there because of Joseph's brothers. And Joseph even says his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So certainly God was intending it, but they're there because Joseph's brothers sold them into slavery. The, the, his, Joseph's brothers were rats. And they were so envious of their, of their younger brother, Joseph, that they engaged in this terror toward him. They were going to kill him. They sold him off to slavery. And hence, this ball gets rolling. And it leads to all sorts of things, one of which is deliverance for the family as they're brought to Egypt in the midst of a famine. So it's a, a grace of God. The Lord used even the evil of Joseph's brothers to get Joseph to Egypt to deliver the very brothers that sent him there. It's amazing grace of God. But that's what they're doing in Egypt. And because Joseph was the right-hand man of the Pharaoh, he was given the land of Goshen and the people have been living there. But as we learn in Exodus 1, there came a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and said, why do, why do I have these people, these foreigners living in our land? And why are they living in, the, in some of the best agricultural land in Egypt? And so he said, enough of that. I'm not going to have that. And they're multiplying. So he enslaves them. He tries to kill the children. You know the whole, the whole story. Well, as Moses then was called to go back, Moses then, you know, tries to deliver his people. His people reject him. He's cast out, spends 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord calls him at the burning bush, sends him back to Pharaoh. You will remember that story and says, hey, I'm going to get my people out of there. I've heard their cry and I'm going to deliver them. And as he sends Moses back now, we go through this time of conflict between Pharaoh and God, Pharaoh and Moses. But Pharaoh essentially resisting the will of God. No, I'm not going to let these people go. And, you know, so we start the series of the 10 plagues. And it's one of these things that we all have to wrestle with. Like, how hard does the Lord have to hit us over the head 
before we start to get the point. But I've really wrestled with that. I've wrestled with that even during this coronavirus time. I, I, I thought to myself, I wonder if, if the stories in the Bible, in my mind, aren't real. Like, do I think of them as mythology? And again, Bible stories. You know, am I able to interpret the times? What, what do I see in the coronavirus? I'm not trying to interpret it. It's a dangerous thing to interpret the providence of God. But if this were a Bible story, like I, I told somebody the other day, if the coronavirus were a Bible story, I could preach a great sermon on it. But it's when it's in real life that I don't, try, I don't attempt to see things through the lenses of God. I don't ask the first question, which should be, Lord, is there something that I need to repent of? Not that the Lord is bringing coronavirus upon the whole world because of something Bill Spanger did, at least I hope not. But nonetheless, you know, when the disciples come to Jesus, when the Tower of Siloam falls and it kills a bunch of people, and the disciples have Jesus right there and they get to ask him. <laughs> Think about it, if you could just ask God personally in face-to-face, -face, why? And they got Jesus right there and they say, why did, these, why did this happen? Why was this allowed to happen? It seems so random. Why did these people die? Don't you ask that question a lot? We want to ask God that question. And Jesus' answer is, I tell you the truth, unless you repent, you too will perish. <laughs> I, I can assure you that's not the answer they were looking for. I, I'm pretty confident that answer did not satisfy them. But that's the answer they needed. The, the, it's not our job to get all the whys and the wherefores. The question we need to ask is, hey, is there something I need to repent of? How many times do we need to be knocked over the head before we say, Lord, I, I, I know I need to repent. I need to examine my own heart. I need to make sure that I'm working on the sin in my own life. And Pharaoh, of course, it takes these multiple plagues as the Lord engages him in this conflict time after time. And Moses says, you know, let my people go, the, the famous line there. So this is the context for Passover. We've got the people helpless and enslaved, and we've got this overlord that's holding them captive, and the Lord is going to battle with them or with him. Now, I want us just to think about a couple uh, things regarding this conflict between Pharaoh and, and the Lord. And again, the first thing is the reason Israel's even in this situation is because of their own sin. And remember, let's look at this story in light of the big story, right? If we take the Exodus as a picture of our own story, then we would be the characters who are, in, who are enslaved, right? And the Bible says this in Romans chapter 6, that we were slaves to sin. You and I are slaves to death. There's no one watching me right now or no one around us who's escaping this thing, right? We are all enslaved to our mortality. So it's a condition of helplessness that we're all in. I love this, um, this quote by, uh, I won't give you the exact quote and I'll have to paraphrase it, but a line from C.S. Lewis in his essay, Learning in Wartime. We were reflecting on this as a faculty together. Like, why would you study math and history and science when, you, the, you know, the coronavirus nightmare is all around us? Like, how can we even continue to do school and we're trying to do remote learning through videos and so forth? And the question would be, why? And Lewis tackles this in an essay he wrote during World War II, asking the same question. And he says in, in that essay that wartime doesn't change anything, right? Coronavirus time doesn't change anything. It just reveals to us what's always true, like trouble, death. You know, these things are always right there on the surface. We're, we're always a heartbeat away. It's just that 
on the good days, what Lewis calls the normal, he says there's no normal day. But on the normal day, we're able to distract ourselves from these things. We don't, we really don't believe in our heart that death is a heartbeat away. You know, it's not until we hear of a tragedy and all of a sudden it's, ah, or we attend a funeral and we realize, you know, oh my goodness, this, this is, life is frail. Or you get a global pandemic and we all have to deal with the frailty of our lives, the frailty of our economy, the frailty, you know, of, of, of our bodies, right? It's, but, but Lewis says, this is what's true every day. It's just that we delude ourselves and we distract ourselves. So it's this kind of helplessness and enslavement to mortality, to death, even to sin that we see uh, really characterized for us in this story, this true historical story. But it becomes a, a bigger paradigm for us to think of ourselves in. We are just like them. So that's one thing I think we have to think about with the conflict that Israel is in here. The second thing, and I, I, I want to stress this, that the conflict here, which we see in the plagues between Pharaoh and God, is no conflict at all for God. It's not as if God really wants these people out, though he does, but Pharaoh is somehow resisting him and, and God is in this tug of war and it's going toward Pharaoh. No, it's going back toward God. No, it's going back toward Pharaoh. There, there is no conflict from God's point of view. And when God called Moses in, in Exodus 4, he said, look, I'm sending you back in there to get the people out, but Pharaoh's going to resist. So I'm going to go through this plagues business and then I'm going to deliver you. In Romans 9, Paul says that God says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that my power might be made manifest in you. Pharaoh, Pharaoh is a pawn of God's. And this is true, by the way, of Satan himself, right? If Satan is the greater Pharaoh, right? The battle between light and darkness, the battle between Satan and God, it's, it's not a Star Wars battle of the force versus the evil empire, you know, and it's, it's who's going to win this thing, right? The, the, the victory is never in doubt. Satan, like Pharaoh, is a pawn in the hand of God. Now, we might ask the question, why would God allow there to be Satan? That's a fair question. But again, God is not really in the business of giving us a lot of answers. We're on a need-to-know basis with him, and you don't need to know why he does what he does. But here's what you do need to know. He is sovereign over these things. And he was sovereign over the affairs of Israel in Egypt. He was sovereign over Pharaoh. Pharaoh could not resist or Pharaoh could not do one bit more than what God allowed. And I know it's hard to hear, but this is true also of the coronavirus. I mean, I'm not trying to make this a coronavirus sermon. It's just obviously it's in our heads. Um, but this is true of coronavirus. It's true of death in general. Ultimately, God is sovereign over these things. And as I said last week, God's hair is not on fire. It's not as if God is in heaven thinking, how do I get this thing back in the box? And as Christians, that needs to bring us comfort. It may not bring a non-Christian comfort because they may not trust the God who's sovereign over these things. But we do. He's our father. He's our father. And so we trust him. So Israel may have been asking in Egypt, like, what the heck? You know, why, can't we, why are we going through plague after plague after plague? But God had his purposes. And God was bringing them all to this climactic point. So first, the context of the Passover, helplessness, enslavement, and something that we can relate to in and of ourselves. We once were slaves to sin. We were all slaves to death and to our own mortality. And we, like Israel, 
need deliverance. So let's think about the second point, deliverance, the deliverance of Passover. Now, as we go through the plagues, you'll remember if you go back and read them, that as they go through the nine plagues, and here we come to the Passover, to the death of the firstborn, which is the 10th plague, right? The climactic plague, it's over at this point. But as we go through the plagues, some of them affected everybody in the land, that is all the Egyptians and all the Israelites. Others of the plagues only affected the Egyptians and the Israelites were spared. But as we come to this final plague, it once again is something that is going to affect everybody. And again, I think that if we view the plagues as the small j judgments of God that we all experience throughout history, coronavirus being one of them, and again, I'm not trying to say what God is judged, but it's, it, let's face it, it's a trial that the Lord is putting the world through. And as we go through these trials, as we go through tribulations, not everybody experiences them all in the same way, right? We, we know that. You have been through certain trials. I have not been through. I have been through some trials. I'm guessing you haven't been through. And this is just how it goes through life. But each of them is calling us to repentance. Each of them is calling us to recognize our frailty. Each of them is calling us to come back and cling to the Lord Jesus Christ and to flee from our clinging to this frail life. You know, we all want this to go well, but we need to flee and cling to Christ. So we all go through different trials and circumstances. However, the 10th plague, we all got to go through. The final judgment is one that no one will escape. And it's a severe, it's a severe one, right? It's the severest of all of them. And even the 10th plague here is but a little picture of the severity of the ultimate 10th plague, if you will. This is the most severe of the small judgments on Egypt, and it's brutal, it's awful. Again, take it out of being Bible story, you know, sort of Sunday school story, and think about the horror of this in Egypt as all the firstborn die. Uh, it's terrible, it's terrible. But I, I assure you, and I don't say this with uh, I don't say this with any lightheartedness. It, it, it is a it's a terribly insufficient picture of the ultimate tenth plague. But in that tenth plague, we will all stand. We will all have to come and give an account. No one will be free from this. However, while Israel, like Egypt, needs to stand before God and be and give an account, while each of them have to undergo the angel of death as he will come through and wield this judgment. While Israel does not escape the event, Israel, of course, is given a substitute. Israel is given a deliverer. And this, of course, is our Christian hope. It, it, we, must, we must look at this passage and see it in the light of Christ. And I think for most of us, if you have any Christian background, I think you can see Christ so clearly in this passage. And our other readings, which we did today, 1 Peter 1, you know, we're redeemed with the blood of the Lamb. Mark chapter 14, that as Christ is going to the cross, he chooses, and I believe he's sovereign over this. It's not a mere coincidence that Jesus goes to Jerusalem for his hour at the time of Passover. That Jesus chooses this story to be the frame around his crucifixion. You know, he might have been crucified another time, you know. But he, he chose in his wisdom and God's providence to let the Passover be the frame for our understanding what he's doing as he goes to the cross. And what is he doing? He's delivering us. He's delivering us from the great Pharaoh. 
He's delivering us from Satan's sin and death. He's delivering us from the final judgment, the 10th plague, if you will, of God's judgment. And so we see the little pictures of that in the deliverance that Israel is called to do. They're called to take a lamb. It's a one-year-old male lamb and it's to be unblemished, this picture of purity for the substitute that is to stand in the place of Israel. And again, Israel will not escape. Death is going to have to come to every house. The only difference is here, death may come to the lamb in the place of the firstborn. And the blood is to be taken and put on the doorposts and on the lintels, covering them and covering their house. And as the angel of death comes, as the Lord's messenger of judgment comes, when he sees the blood on the doorposts and on the lintels, uh, he will pass over that house. It reminds me of one of my favorite lines. I know I've shared this at church before. I've, I've shared it with my classes too, though most of my students don't sing great hymns anymore. Uh, but but one of my favorite lines from a hymn that I, I think many people don't know. It's uh, The hymn is called At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing. But one of my favorite lines from it is this, where the Paschal, Paschal meaning Passover, where the Paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. Where the Paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. And I love that image of the angel coming to bring that 10th plague judgment, but seeing the blood of the lamb shed, the provision of God the Father for his people, that blood is shed and the angel of death sheathes his sword. Justice is satisfied. It's been covered here. I move on to the next house. So Israel is provided deliverance. It's the great but God of the Old Testament, right? That you deserve judgment. We're all going to have to stand before God. Death is coming to every house, but God, who is rich in mercy, provided a substitute for you, for all who will trust his word and lean upon that sacrifice. And of course, this is a pattern that has been developing in in the Old Testament already. In Genesis chapter three, as Israel is kicked out of the Garden of Eden, you'll remember that before they go, they're given animal skins to cover them. And there, put between them and God, is an angel with a sword, right? The angel with the flaming sword, keeping them from getting back into the Garden of Eden, back into the presence of God. And the question we thought about when we looked at that text was how then can sinful mankind on this side of that angel ever get through the flaming sword and into the presence of God? That's a great question. It's really the question of the rest of the Bible. But the answer is hinted at and given in that same text in Genesis 3, 19, 20. When God takes an animal and slays it and takes the animal skins and covers the nakedness of Adam and Eve, symbolizing and demonstrating the way by which they will come back through that sword. That when they are clothed in the sacrifice of God, the sacrifice ultimately of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we are clothed in Christ and we approach that sword, death's dark angel sheathes his sword and we pass through. Justice has been satisfied. The animal has been slain and you may pass safely through. And of course, we saw in Abraham too, as he comes out to, up to Mount Moriah and he's about to slay his son. And God says, no, don't. And provides the ram who will come, you know, with the thorns in his head, right? The, the ram whose head is caught in the crown of thorns, if you will. And the ram, this substitute is taken and laid on the altar and he is slain on behalf of Isaac and on behalf of us all. 
And so the Passover is not giving us something new. It's just giving us one more glimpse with some new detail about the crisis moment that the Passover comes in. That is, it comes at that moment of final judgment, that moment of the 10th plague. So we got the context and we got our deliverance. And then finally, the celebration. What I love about Passover in, in, in the story here is that it's not simply another sacrifice story because that would be sufficient. It would be glorious and awesome to have another deliverance passage. But it's also a feast. It's not just a sacrifice you eat, you celebrate, you have a meal together. Now notice their meal is in haste. Hey, you got to have your belt on, you got to have your staff in your hand, you got to have your sandals on your feet, and you got to eat because this meal is going to propel you. This meal is going to sustain you now for the journey, the long, hard journey that you have on your way to the promised land. But it's not just that we have a sacrifice, but that we partake of it, we eat of it, we celebrate together the sacrifice that is given to us. And so they would take the lamb along with the unleavened bread and they would eat together. And again, what comes to my mind is that language in Psalm 23 when he says, and the Lord will prepare, my good shepherd, right? He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. I mean, I've said it before, but like, are you, I don't know if you're like me, but, but when I'm nervous, I cannot eat. If I have to give a big talk or something and people want to feed me before it, I can't eat. I'm very nervous. When I coach sports, I could never, I could never eat before a game. Oh, when we'd win, I could just feast. It was like I was gluttonous. I was terrible. But before the game, I just, I didn't even want to think about food. I couldn't eat because I have this event right ahead of me, this thing that's nerve wracking to me. Well, here, Psalm 23 says, the Lord, our good shepherd, prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He tells us to eat. Well, you can't eat when you're so anxious and upset. But that's the point, is our enemy has been defeated. It's just, it's just uh, uh, two chapters later at which Israel will be out by the banks of the Red Sea and, and the, armies of Israel will be advan uh, the armies of Egypt will be advancing to them and they'll be trapped between the army and the Red Sea and there's no escape and they say, oh, we're going to die. Why were we brought out here? You know, just to die because there were no graves in Egypt? And Moses will say, you stand still and watch as God fights for you. And that's the point. God is fighting in this 10th plague. He's delivering his people. And what does Israel do? Israel eats. We eat at the table of the Lord that he has provided for us in the presence of our enemies. It is Christians, I know this is hard for me anyway, so I'm convicted by my own words here, but I can eat in peace in the presence of the coronavirus. Right? In, in the anxieties that are swirling around, at least in principle, we should be able to. To be able to eat even while the world's on fire. Now, of course, we're active and we're serving and we're loving our neighbors, but, but we can do all that peacefully. We can be caring about other people peacefully because the ultimate enemy for us is defeated. Death itself is defeated. And therefore, even in the presence of death or pending death, we could eat the table that's prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. Because the sacrifice is made. Death's archangel has sheathed his sword. And we're free. Now, again, this is why we need to confess our sins every, every week. Because we, let's confess, we struggle with this. We struggle. Right? But this is the reality that's there for you. So I want to encourage you 
oh, I so badly wish that uh, we could all now partake of the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper, it's interesting that Jesus, think about that. You talk about being anxious. He was sweating drops of blood, yet he was able to prepare a table for his disciples in the presence of the darkness that was looming upon him. And they ate together. That Jesus took the moment of his sacrifice and made it a meal, a time of communion and fellowship. And this is what we have as Christians. This story is pointing forward to that great event and that event, the event of the Last Supper, and which becomes for us the Lord's Supper, is a pointer forward to the Great Supper, that wedding feast of the Lamb that we will partake in when we have seen all of our enemies defeated, completely obliterated, and every tear is wiped away and every bit of sorrow is removed. What an awesome feast that will be. I'll tell you what, we will, be, we will eat to our heart's content on that day. But the Lord's Supper is a little foretaste of that as we partake of it, we are partaking, if you will, of the first course. We're partaking of the appetizers, if you will, of that great event. Because what you see on the cross is the 10th plague, right? It's, it's the final judgment coming to bear all upon Jesus Christ. He is bearing in his body on the cross that 10th plague that all will have to endure on that day. And if we are covered in the blood of the Lamb, if we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, then on that day, death's dark angel sheathes his sword and we feast. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you today to look again to the Lord Jesus Christ, to reflect upon the sacrifice and the deliverance that he has wrought you, to not be distracted by all of the chaos, the grievous trials, as Peter says, that are swirling around us, and to remember that you have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, as he makes his way to Jerusalem, knows what he's going to do. He's going as the Passover Lamb for the sake of his people. And today I encourage you and I charge you to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and in him find comfort and peace. Amen. Well, somewhere open. As we close our time together today, we'll say the Apostles' Creed. If you happen to have it with you, great. If not, well, I guess you get to listen to me say it, but that's fine too, because it's our confession as the people of God that right in the presence of our enemies, we confess our faith in this God. And we take the story of the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, this is our story. This is the story that I'm taking to the bank. This is a story that I'm laying all my hope in. So, if you have it with you, fine. Let us confess our faith together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let me go ahead and pray as we close, and then grant a benediction, and I'll sign off. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come to you with thankful hearts today. For we know 
Father. We know that we will all stand before that final judgment. We know that we will have to endure that 10th plague, that no one escapes that. But Father, we thank you that you have provided for us a deliverer in the midst of that judgment, one who stands in our place and bears that judgment for us, that we then may feast upon the sacrifice that is given to us. He fights while we feast. We live because he died. Oh, how we give thanks that where the paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. So I pray, Father, for all listening. I pray for myself today, that, Lord, in the midst of the trials, you would be with us. Heavenly Father, I pray for the needs of the church, uh, of affirmation. Father, you know them all, and I lift them up to you. Father, I pray for us in the midst of this coronavirus that you would strengthen us, sustain us. Father, we pray today for uh, those who have a role in the medical field, for nurses and doctors. Father, how we ask that now you would protect them, that you would sharpen their skills. We pray for all who are at work even now trying to find a cure. We pray for those who are at work trying to build ventilators, for those who are trying to build hospitals and hospital beds. Father, how we pray that the needs of the sick might be met. We pray for our president. We pray for his team that is working on this virus. We pray for our governor and for his team. Father, how we pray that you would give them all great wisdom. Uphold and sustain them, Father, by your strength. And Lord, we pray for your church at this time. We pray that you would make us salt and light. That you would make us those who do not live in fear, but who live in strength, knowing that it is our sovereign Father who holds all these things in his hands. And while we do not understand what you're doing, Father, we trust you. So be with your church. Give us courage. May we stand apart from the world in that we stand with confidence and then are able to express love to our neighbors and caring for them and their needs. So Father, we, we pray for our nation and we pray for the world. Grant your peace, Father, we pray. And now be with us as we take the words of this text and, and Father, the story of the Passover. May we see Christ more clearly through it. And by seeing him more clearly, may we give you all praise, honor, and glory. We ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.